Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, journalist Samantha Critchell. A few months ago now, when I went public with the truth about my mental health, hundreds of friends shared their support via social media. A few called. One of those who called was one of my oldest, dearest friends, Samantha Critchell. Sam and I met on our very first day at Syracuse University. Two of only a few dozen underclassmen somehow placed in a non-dorm dorm, an old apartment building a few blocks off the beaten path converted, presumably, for that year's overflow of Gen Xers. Where I showed up unwittingly traumatized from an assault that left me in the hospital for three days just the year prior, and deeply melancholic for the high school friends I'd left behind, Sam was a bolt of sunshine from day one. Together, we rode the roller coaster of our freshman year, stayed connected through our shared experience at SU's Newhouse School, and kept current straight through graduation. Sam's been a constant companion throughout our respective career changes and moves, movie premieres and promotions. Little wonder then, as I settle into my new home, career, and life, I felt deeply compelled to check in with my remarkably accomplished old friend. Sam began her career at WBUG-FM in Amsterdam, New York, then parlayed her breaking news experience there to a 16-year career at the Associated Press. She parlayed her years of AP fashion coverage to a run at brand name fashion communications at Ralph Lauren and PVH, and now leads editorial and social at American Express. In this week's Friends and Neighbors, Sam shares how her upbringing in Westport, Connecticut led to a profound objectivity and how growing up in the garment district shaped her career, plus highlights from her tenure at the storied and respected AP, and how it informed what came next. We even touch on freshman year for just a second. Sam begins in Manhattan's garment district, circa 1971. My parents were full-on garmentos, as were my grandparents and most of my extended family. So my dad actually had a factory at 18th and Broadway. And my dad had a factory with his father called Matson Shirts. We lived on the Upper East Side. I went to a preschool right near the UN. So it was very actually international. I associate it with being happy, but I didn't have neighborhood friends and yeah. all of that. That was a big part of what took my parents to Westport and schools. Yeah. And I assume your sister came along shortly thereafter and the apartment got too small. Talk to me about Westport was a nice place, like age 10. What would I find you doing after school? I took acting lessons. I took dance lessons, but we really had the kind of neighborhood that was what you imagine from a 70s or 80s sitcom. Kids would gather in the street. We'd ride our bikes. We all had dogs. There weren't electric fences. So sometimes the dogs chased you. Yeah. We didn't, weren't able to call our parents to tell us then when we were going to be home for dinner. But there was like the familiarity. And I remember there being a list of phone numbers next to the phone of uh-huh. like all the other neighborhood places. So parents would call and be like, it's time for dinner. All of that was nice. My sister is four years younger. The kids kind of ranged from probably her age to slightly older than me. And we really did do that. Oh, the kids meet up or on snow days, you make 
snowmen out front. What came later that then made Westport a more difficult place was my parents were self-employed. So there was up and down and up and down. Right. And in a place like Westport, you really notice the down. I see. Right, right. There were things that at the time seemed maybe charming when I was on the younger side. There was one year like we made our own ornaments for the Christmas tree. I feel like it's middle school or wherever that you, this all smacks you in the face of like, oh, we used to have a really nice car. Now we don't have such a nice car. My parents have both passed away within the last five years. And I would say it was that ride until literally the day they died. You felt in contrast or occasionally outside. Is that the subtext of what you're saying? Not just outside. I felt like always trying to catch up. Yeah. Most people would never know I was outside. I worked at the Corn Popper since I was 14. And I used my money to keep up my own. Yeah. My parents were always sensitive to that. They knew and were never unkind about it. There was just reality. Yeah. It's something that I really didn't talk about until I was older, until I was in college and met you. And that was the chance of like, now I don't have to pretend stuff. Good, bad, ugly. I was a good student. I did all the right things. And that's because I wanted to. I never felt like pressure to be the best kid. I think I like doing nice things. I like doing well. I am self-motivated. But there was a relief when there wasn't like the keeping up with the Joneses. Uh, I got to appreciate nature. I think I got to be really safe. All these places where I live now in Ridgefield, Westport, and everywhere in between, they're like among the safest places in the country. Yeah, There's a freedom that comes with that of like letting me as a teenager stay out and go to the diner at two o'clock in the morning when I could drive. Yeah. It was never any concern of looking over your shoulder. That safety is interesting to me. It's not surprising either. Because again, I always view you as a stable presence in my life. And that would make sense because you, if you feel safe, you're not frenetic. Right. And while like our financial situation did go up and down and that was sort of a constant stress in our house. Otherwise, I had parents who I knew loved me. Yeah. I had a good relationship with my sister. I had friends. I did well in school. So there is this idea of safety, not just being no cops and robbers out the door, but also you feel loved, you know, you have friends, you know, you have a place to go. I always felt secure in my place. Also a Libra, which like not for nothing. I crave balance. I crave fixing the situation. I don't expect Mm. everything to be perfect, but I always say I can deal with anything if I know what I'm dealing with and I might react, but I will get over it very quickly. Yeah. And I can be very level-headed and logical. In the one second you tell me something bad is happening, I will react. I cry a lot. I cry at good things. I cry at bad things, but you can only cry for so long. Like I tear up, I get it out of the way. I literally cry all the time now. It seems really healthy to just, when you feel it, you let it rip and then it doesn't build up. Right. And I've always been that crier. I can think of commercials when I was little and now 
Ava and I have a song together. Whenever Here Comes the Sun on the Radio, My Bright Sunshine, I cry. I can watch the Hallmark Channel. I could watch the Weather Channel or CNN, and I would still cry. (laughs) And I do it probably every day. But it happens, and then it's over. I do think I'm very good at then making a plan of action. Storytelling is a through line for both of us, but in your life and career, what are some of your first favorite stories that you remember really gravitating to or reading over and over or loving? I loved the book Little Women. I read a juvenile version when I was very young and then have reread it several times throughout the years. And Mm -hmm. then when the movie came out a few years ago, I reread it. I've already set up how much... I felt loved by my parents and loved them. They were much more extreme people than I am. This goes maybe to the Libra thing. Like I am really well-balanced. I am a good moderator. I drink wine, but I'm very happy with a glass. I could always count on you, even when I couldn't count on me. (laughs) But my parents were very extreme people. Gotcha. Hot or cold, right or wrong, all or nothing. Mm. And I do often say that I felt like Marilyn from the Munsters. Ugh, yeah. Where they all got along and they loved each other and they were a family, but she was just a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. And in Little Women, there's Joe. Right. She ends up being the glue to the family that she was always questioning why they were that way, what made them tick. It was Joe's story, so it's probably really easy to put yourself as the protagonist. Sure. But I always thought of myself as Joe. I love knowing that about your role in the family. So you were like agitator or the person who goes, hold on, let's dig into this a little deeper or let's spend more time figuring this thing out. I think I'm more the fixer. More like a mob family. (laughs) 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 Went and do cleanup. Yeah. And then again, in the nicest way about my family... But they were extreme and they loved with everything and they didn't like with everything. And I would kind of go in and I feel like smooth things over. When my father died, his financial life, his everything had been falling apart, which I think I had seen glimpses of. Mm. But the reaction was, okay, we have to sit down and go through every piece of mail that hasn't been opened. Right. So not in like the what we must get to the bottom of things and hold hands. It's just like, you know what, leave me alone and I'm just going to fix this. Yeah. Like problem solving. Yeah. I think I'm a problem solver. Somebody had to be grounded in the center. You must have felt unconsciously an imperative or something. I think it was unconscious when I was young. Um, (laughs) I crave stability. I think it's why I often work for big companies. Yeah. I was going to ask that. Yeah. Coming from a self-employed background. I like to land in the middle Mm. of things. Not just that I like to be at the center and have some control, but I also like to fall in the middle of the spectrum. I don't listen to any kind of extreme music. I don't listen to punk and I don't listen to classical. I don't like violent movies and I don't like super savvy movies. Like I am really, if you could take an average of the population, I think I would fall a lot in the middle. And I'm very happy there, which I think a lot of people, especially who 
work in media or talk to big personalities. They're looking to be on one side or the other. But I am really happy to be like your average suburban 50-year-old. I'm not embarrassed by it. I like that I live in Connecticut. I feel like which is a very middle of the road kind of place. I feel like my roles in work are often as facilitators, problem solvers. Like we need to find consensus. So I can't take an extreme position. I'm not extreme politically. I feel like very few people would know where I live there. And I'm okay with that. It's no wonder I was dying to talk to you, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as you more you talk, I was like, oh, of course I miss that energy, you know? I thought I would hate taking out the garbage and waving at the neighbor and, you know, having all this grass and shit, you know, but I love it. You know, there's a bird's nest in the backyard and we'd check on it every day. And I was like, oh, thank God. You know, it just took me a while. There was one summer we had the opportunity to go to the White House to see the 4th of July fireworks. But in my little town in Ridgefield where they do them at the high school where we bring a potluck and we see all of our friends I declined (laughs) only because I really like being here and they will bring that up from time to time and about how did you say no to that was it Bush too or Obama it was Obama. Oh. I would have preferred to go to. Right, totally. That's why I ask. You were probably at AP for Bush too, weren't you? Right. And I think that also has shaped my in the middle personality. So yeah. striving to be a journalist. And yeah, I totally. You were the only person that I went to Newhouse with <gasps> that pursued the career that we set out to do. Hey, all right, dude. You and I were the only ones who went in and did what we said we were going to do. Like, I wanted to be a journalist always. Yeah. By the time I was 14, I would come home to watch live at five. Yeah. I knew I wanted to do that. And a journalist has to be in the middle. Yeah. I think it's part of what made me good at what I was did. I never really walked out of an interview being like, I loved them or I hated them. I could really listen and digest and do a story because I could take a very objective there are people who are going to agree with this person. There are people who aren't going to agree with them. How do I position them in a way that you can see the 360? Yeah. I think it's actually what made me good at what I did and still do. I realize in retrospect, I was a wreck when I showed up in that dorm freshman year. A year prior, my jaw had been broken and I was terrified that I was going to get my ass kicked all the time. Like, and I didn't know that exactly. And that had only happened a few years after the divorce. So like, I just was getting my feet down and I get my jaw broken. And plus I'm bullied because I'm kind of, you know, I'm a singer and I'm kind of effeminate or whatever. And that didn't play well in the late eighties, right? Did I seem like damaged goods? The dorm that we lived in, living in Lehman, which was yeah. such like an off the beaten path. Yeah. Place full of so many different sorts of people. And I think it's because I don't think any of us chose to live together. Right. But we really were like a motley crew. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there was a lot of oddity. Yeah. Yeah. In that building. And everyone sort of accepted it, or at least what I saw accepted it. I will say that I have been 
maybe either accused or complimented throughout my life of being a Pollyanna. Yeah. But I think there's some self-fulfilling prophecy there. I think I knew that there were days that you didn't like school yeah, or like being at Syracuse or sometimes you'd make fun of it. And I never had a regret. I always felt like I didn't always have a good day. Yeah. But I always knew it was where I was supposed to be. And I kind of enjoy it every day. I'm glad to hear you describe the place that way because I actually think of it as a setback, meaning it was not what I needed. What I needed was the typical experience. And what we got was this odds and sods down the street thing. With no supervision? Yeah, I needed more routine and guidance in a sense of this is college as opposed to like all of a sudden we're juniors practically. You know, like we were kind of on on our own. We were completely left to our own devices, I feel like. I don't even remember a presence of an elder or an RA or, for that matter, a security guard. Yeah, (laughs) dude, totally. Oh, my God, it was so dark. Yeah, totally. So on your LinkedIn, I noticed the job at the B isn't there, which makes sense. It was the first gig. My first job out of college was in Amsterdam, New York, which now in the circles I travel in, when I say I was in Amsterdam, people were like, wow, it's very different. I think it's known for arson. And I was the evening news anchor at WBUG. And we embraced the fact that our call letters were the bug. Yeah. Our logo was a B. Yeah. Bug country forecast. I largely credit that with us staying friends, though, because you were the closest proximity of anyone I knew because you were in Saratoga and I was in And I remember I had to go cover the racetrack in Saratoga and you worked at the coffee shop. And I would go there occasionally, but you were like the only connective tissue. And we were both doing, I mean, you were doing it full time. I was working at the coffee shop, but then writing features for the Saratogian, right? Which was a, not a bad landing at the time. I don't think I knew how lucky I was. I mean, shit, it took me like 24 hours to get the freelance gig there or whatever. You know what I mean? And we both knew that it's the gig you get to practice your skills. Right. I had to do live news coverage of things. I mean, I was 22 years old and they'd send me out with a microphone and a tape recorder and actually was a fire that turned out to be arson. Second time this factory had been lit on fire in the middle of the night with all the sirens and, and I reported live and then not for nothing, you know, it wasn't that long, maybe eight years later, I had to do that for 9-11. Wow. Yeah. And it was something that built me and I would start to give some, reports when they needed local news from something I would give them like as an AP member I would give them the update and actually the woman who was the Albany nighttime editor or whatever we ended up working together in New York so get me to the AP because it's such an unusual place the AP is a very special unique thing so give me the like one-on-one when you're trying to explain it to the third cousin who doesn't get it Well, I hold the AP in the highest regard. I am still very close with a ton of current and former AP writers, editors. I don't know if they still do this, but when I moved to New York in 1997, you had to take a test to work at the AP. And everyone took the same test. I think it really leveled the playing field. It democratized the workforce. 
But it also built that same theme of trust and safety. Yeah. Because if I needed help, it was never like, oh, I don't want person A, I want person B, because they're going to do a better job. It was just instilled in you from day one. Everybody here passed this test. You're right. all here belong here. You know, with the AP, you're not required to publish a byline. So all the member newspapers, because the AP is also not-for-profit, which definitely matters in its journalistic integrity, I think. All the collective newspapers, radio stations, TV stations own the AP, mm-hmm. and they buy usage of its content, but they don't have to run the reporter's byline. So it was also never as competitive, I don't Mm. think, maybe because of that. Right. Once you did your respective beat, nobody ever questioned your expertise. Mm. I covered fashion, which does not require the same level of knowledge or skill, probably, as a war correspondent. But I would be called in to do important, more less niche, more general news stories. There was Galliano's trial for hate speech. There was the FCC when Justin Timberlake ripped off Janet Jackson's clothes. Oh, gosh, yeah. I never felt like, oh, but you're fashion. That's cool. You don't really know. It was like, you're a fashion person. You should write this story. Did your family experience inform why you pursued that role within the AP or did it have any bearing on it or provide any value or context? It totally provided the context because I actually really never wanted to go into fashion at all. With the ups and downs that I saw, uh, I wanted to be a journalist and I want to work somewhere big. I want a pension. (laughs) I want all of that. And I had worked at the AP probably four years maybe. And I had started writing some features for the lifestyle department about food and travel. And then there was a snowstorm and the AP used to bring in a freelancer to cover fashion week in New York. And the freelancer who worked for the Detroit free press couldn't come in and literally like the news desk said, is there anyone who knows anything about And basically, it was kind of like the choice of me or the NBA writer. (laughs) I was like, I might. My mom was a designer for maternity line, too. And my dad owned a factory. So I will go. I can't promise. And I actually sat behind a row of young women who worked for Vogue. And they were talking about something about the design. And I actually do remember it was a bias cut dress. And they were sort of like, what's that called? I don't know. And they, I'm sure, were experts in the fashion importance of something, but they didn't know the technical side. Yeah. I learned a lot. And there was one time where I called my dad. Somebody had said that they were doing, I think it was a plaid tweed fabric, a designer. And I called my dad and said, like, that's not possible, right? Because plaid is woven one way and tweed's woven the other you know, earlier when I said that I wasn't allowed to do soccer or whatever, because it interfered with my parents' life, we also didn't go to summer camp. We would go to the office yeah, and keep us busy. Like my mom would give us a form and we would sketch clothing. Wow. And 
both my sister and I had things that actually turned into like successful products. Oh, wow. More because we would go out to dinner after work and we'd be tired and bored and not want to talk about business. So they'd hand us these things to color. And I think my sister had the most successful dress in the history of the company. And she's amazing. So we did learn something. And I think it was the perfect storm of fashion at that moment had been a very niche thing at the AP. But around the early 2000s, that's when all the celebrities got into it. And yeah, Project Runway started and TV crews were everywhere and Joan Rivers on the red carpet. And so it became a much more important component of news coverage in general. I mean, when I started covering Fashion Week, every major newspaper in the country sent someone to Fashion Week and I remain in touch with a lot of them. By the time we ended, I think it was me. Yeah. Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and my best fashion wife from Newsday. <laughs> and the demise of newspapers to some extent helped fuel my prime position because everyone was going to take the AP. Yep, totally. Because they knew your reach. They knew my reach. And suddenly it was going to be used by all those newspapers that used to send somebody. It became a mainstream and ergo suburban mom, right, thing. It became something that even, I mean, you know, I still remember when you took me and I was just terrified and felt like the odd man out, but it is ubiquitous. It's like hip hop. It's in everything. Right. It really had its moment and I'm not a part of the industry anymore, but I really feel like I was a part of it at the best possible. I mean, the spectacles of the runway shows and they'd have snow falling and Taylor Swift would be in the front row, but then oh, look, there's Alec Baldwin. And oh, look, there's Nicole Kidman. It really was a special moment. And it's odd because Fashion Week, for example, is twice a year. It had been the same people for so long. You know, this was kind of pre-social media influencers or maybe at its very beginning. It was like a fraternity. You only saw these people two weeks a year, but you were super close. I could look next to my left and right at a fashion show and be like, oh, it's Wednesday because I know I always talk to this person on Wednesday and everything kind of felt safe and everything felt comfortable. It is actually why I also left the AP is because I was at a Victoria's Secret fashion show. I don't know, maybe my eighth or ninth. And it's such a privileged position to be in. And I always knew that I walked out of there being like, I don't know what I'm going to write. Like I wrote the story before it was so the same and I knew it was time to give it to somebody else. And so you go to one of the largest, most iconic American masculine brands. Ralph Lauren is big. And as it should, there is somebody who covers real fashion And those were the Vogue equivalent who could talk a lot about shape and design and inspiration. And I was the liaison to all the news media to talk about everything from earnings to tech innovation. So was that a real radical transition for you? It was. I went from like zero to 60 and it didn't last. I mean, I was there three years, which isn't complete abandonment, but... It was 
too much too fast Mm. in terms of it being a single vision instead of how do we do the broadest appeal and the words of like the best and the first and the most. I mean, the AP has experts in every field. It also gets you all sorts of different people. People come to work at Ralph Lauren because they love Ralph Lauren. And it's a certain model of person who works there. It is another fraternity, but I wasn't a part of it. Probably the only time in my life where I felt like an outsider. You know, I feel like not in terms of the work, people were nice. I was very much part of whatever was going on and, you know, super lucky to have been able to do that. But I never wore jodhpurs before and a lot of people (laughs) work there do. They knew everything. They knew everything about the brand and the company and everything's interpreted through Mr. Lauren's eyes. Yeah, yeah. And not your own. He'll like this. He wouldn't like that. And that's so not the way of being a journalist. Yeah, yeah. It was too much too fast. And I still talk to some people. I respect immensely what the company has done, but it wasn't for me. I'm going to jump over to Amex, how this happened and what it's like. And what's it like to tell a story there? So when I made the move from PVH, which is the owner of Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein, not a huge leap from Ralph Lauren, but I actually took the news person role there. So it was kind of like crawling back to 30 from the 60. Yeah. When I got the call with an offer to consider coming to Amex, I really didn't think it was a big leap because I thought of Amex as, I don't know, a luxury brand and, oh, they sponsor Fashion Week and... They do a lot on Broadway, and that's how I thought of the company. When I got there and had to take the financial services compliance, I realized I am in a different world. Yeah, yeah. But Amex is actually more similar to the AP in that it is so big and broad and global, and everyone from a 22-year-old maybe getting their first credit card or a small business is actually a huge part of our audience and clientele, who could be the bookstore owner in Ridgefield, to Delta and the Four Seasons and everything else. So it's actually finding content that's good and not having to be so niche for a specific audience. The idea is that good is good. And I tell my own team this a lot, that you know, if you're putting out a news story or something on social, you know, if it's good. Yeah. And most of the time that will indicate the performance and you know it before you post it. It It's going to get a lot of clicks. It's going to get a lot of eyeballs. And I think that this is actually the most similar to being a journalist. If you were turning back to that, you know, nine or 10 year old on her bike riding around the neighborhood, what would you tell her? What would you say to her about how it's turned out so far? Because you're like halfway home. You got a lot more to do. I would say enjoy each day. You know, I try to find the bright side in every day. It will be there. I think my journey is not where I expected to be now, but it's, again, not a drastic turn. And that's okay too. I feel like in the world we live in now, there is encouragement to 
be drastic. <laughs> and I am happy where I landed. And I think about that a lot. My glass is half full. Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborsshow.com. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Lifelong friends.